This episode is brought to you by Bend a Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Learn more at bendatable.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com. And when you use code HRN for a new subscription, you get $20 off, and we at HRN get $10. Cooking Issues, this is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Lower Manhattan. Well, Matt's in Rhode Island, and John's in Murray Hill, and Jack's in Brooklyn, and we have a special guest, Angela, who we'll get to, is in Lincoln, Nebraska. Not at Roberta's Pizzeria, because none of us are open, and no one's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Oh, the uh, Blue Angels, Uh-oh. I guess, are outside, so there's some fighter yeah, jets going over, my, uh, going over my house. Turn you know, to you're actually seeing them? You know, burning up, burning up. Flying over out of to pay their respects for your work on cooking issues, Dave. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's like because there's nothing I want more than to be trapped inside and to hear thunderous jets overhead, and not actually get to see them. You know what I mean? You're welcome. Yeah, Yeah. I got I got once uh, um, buzzed by a uh, what was it? Was it a Hornet, like an F-18 or something, in the Panamint Mountains? on my way to uh, Death Valley because there was no one else in the entire valley where we were. And this jet was like, there's something moving. I'll buzz it. And it was like, <laughs> right over the car. And I was like, dang, that stuff's impressive. Like, you know, fighter jets is impressive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So uh, we are uh, Stasless today. We have no Nastasia Lopez because she's working with uh, – you know, one of those Jose Andres, uh, you know, COVID-related uh, charities today doing um, coordination or something like that, helping helping people help each other. So whatever, we'll give her a pass. I won't even rib her about it because she's doing the right thing. But in the place of uh, Nastasia, we have Wacky Jackie Shram, head bartender Hello. of the currently closed, but, you know, hopefully soon to reopen existing condition. How you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? Doing well, doing well. And, of course, we got, uh, you know, new new regular on the show, John from uh, from uh, Booker and Dax, the new Spinzall and Searsall customer service guru. How you doing? And special, special, special guest today, and we have her for the whole time, a uh, longtime, you know, friend of mine from back, all the way back to my French Culinary Institute days, and I've never pronounced her last name twice the same way. So we'll do it, and, and I'll have her pronounce it. I think, she, uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll try to do it the way I think she pronounces it, and then we'll, so Angela Garbitz, did I, is that the way you pronounce it? That's actually perfect, yeah. Yeah, because we, yeah. we used to just call her like G-Botch, Garbotch, anything, anything other than her actual name. But Angela just wrote, she's the owner, founder of uh, Goldenrod um, Pastries in Lincoln, Nebraska, correct? Correct, yes. Yeah. And uh, one of my super favorite people, and uh, we can get into the kind of the story. Although you've been on the show before, right? Yep, I have. Yeah. Um, But she just came out with her very first book called Perfectly Golden. Now, uh, you want me to give the the 30-second spiel on uh, how we got to where we are? You want it? Do it, yeah. All right. All right. So I first, what, what, what year did you go to the FCI? 
Okay, so I first met you in 2008. You came to do pastry. So I used to have this intern program at um, at the French Culinary Institute. And p- anyone who was coming in, either in the pastry or the culinary programs, in the six-month pro- six professional program, um, they could come and we would work on kind of fun new techniques and technologies. And right away, you know, Angela came and I guess you had taken a break from from college or had you finished? You took a break, right? Um, I did a culinary science program. And so we had to go, we had to get X number of culinary school credits. And so that was kind of, I really didn't want to go to college and I wanted to go to pastry school. And this was kind of my in to do both. And I had actually, I don't know if you remember this, but I couldn't choose a pastry school. And then a friend of mine showed me an article featuring you in popular science in the fall of 2007. Oh, and man. I was like, oh my God, this guy, this guy's so cool. This guy's doing such cool stuff. And he's at this school. <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> and so I went and did a, a tour at FCI. And I think you, I was like, this guy's a, you know, you are also one of my super favorite people. And I remember the first time that we met, you were in the amphitheater doing an interview with New York Times. And I was doing my tour. I think Jock was taking me around and He's like, oh, and this is Dave. I know you wanted to do that internship. And you like totally halted your interview with the New York Times. And you're like, hey, what's up? What are you doing? Who are you? What do you want to do? And I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy's cool. He just shut down the New York Times. Well, you know, look, honestly, like say what you want. People can say what they want about uh, like, you know, educa- culinary school education. But I know I was. And I think the entire school, especially back then, I haven't been back in a little while, but like we were pretty student focused. We wanted people to yeah. feel, you know, well, we actually did care. I thought we cared. I felt like we Yeah, cared. for sure. And, and it really felt yeah. that way. So I, yeah, I ended up going to French Culinary, Culinary Institute just because of the internship with you. And that's how I met some of my, my best buds, actually. Oh, man. Well, it, well, I was I was super glad that you did. We were, you know, anytime it was super rare for us to have someone in with any sort of um, any sort of uh, kind of science background or any even kind of affinity for it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a it's a funny thing. Like cooking schools are funny because they are an incredible cross section of people and they they only really sh- mostly share. And we had some people in who, you know, the, whatever, their parents were paying and they just wanted to be shoemakers, whatever, fine. But, which is, I don't really understand. Why Why insult shoemakers? Not an easy thing to make well. Shoes, not an easy thing to make well. Why do we insult shoemakers? What, the, what is that? Who is we? Who is insulting shoemakers? Chefs. Chefs insult shoes. It was like, hey, is this guy a good cook? Ah, they're a shoemaker. You know what I mean? I would rather go to, I would rather learn how to make food than make shoes. That sounds really hard. I think the implication is that they're turning food into shoes, like overcooking a steak. No, 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 no. I don't think they're insulting a shoemaker. No, 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 no. The insult was that they were merely a craftsperson and not an artiste. So, like, a, a shoemaker was someone who, like, showed up at work and, like, just did what they were gonna do. And they did a good, you know, you know, work, 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 you know, person's like job at it. They were okay at it. You know what I mean? But there was no inspiration. You know what I mean? There was nothing like, so there was they're, nothing. They're, they're the lifeblood of the entire industry. The people who show up and do the work well every day. Yeah. Yeah. But when you love that person, you're like, they're a monster. They're a crank. They're sick. It's, and then, but, true. 
But when they're just kind of like, when you want them to be a leader and all they're doing is that stuff, you're like, man, a shoemaker. You know what I mean? But again, yeah. I, I think it's a false, because making shoes, not easy. Making good shoes, not easy. In the same way that making good food's not easy. Anyway, so I don't even know how I got on that. So anyway, so, so you, you, you come in, you do the internship. We had an amazing group of uh, people at the time. And then you go, and by the way, uh, you worked at like some amazing kitchens here in, in New York while you were here. I mean, and like worked like a dog. You worked like a dog. You went directly, you went from either in class to like the internship and then off to work. I mean, you, I, I don't, did you sleep ever? What was your deal? So that, yeah, it's funny that you ask. It was a wild time. I mean, I was there and I knew that like I wouldn't be able to afford to stay after. So I was like, I just, I'll just do everything I can right now. So we were at school really late doing the internship. And I started doing a bread internship for a short time before I started class in the morning. So I was doing either your internship or um, at Jean George until like, you know, usually Jean George was later till like midnight or one. And then I'd show up for the bread at like six and then do a day of class and do the internship. It was like five days a week. And then I worked at Jean George on Saturday. So I yeah, by the would way, go home. I don't know if you ever knew this. My, the only thing I had to eat in my apartment because I was eating everywhere else was um, kielbasa from a great um, Ukrainian butcher in the Lower East Side. And I had beer. And so I would go home every night and have open a beer and boil one sausage while I got ready for bed. <laughs> and I would lay in bed and eat half a sausage while I passed out. That's incredible. I like that. I like that. I like that. That's, that's... Which, which, which butcher? I can't remember the name. It was like URDZ is what it started with. The, is that the one it was on, on the uh, on west second? side of um, the street? That's all. On Second Avenue? Yeah. The, yeah, the East there. Village Meat Market. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Still there. yeah. Uh, is that still there, Jack? Yeah. yeah. I used I, the kielbasa is excellent. It's the best kielbasa. <laughs> it's so good. It's especially the best kielbasa. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good. You know, today with the book launch, I was supposed to be in New York, and I was actually going to have a party at Existing Conditions tonight. Well, well, that was like my dream. That was the plan. And it's nice that we can kind of still catch up together somehow. So let me, let me just, let me, let me finish this though. The best kielbasa, Angela, is the one you have (laughs) at two in the morning in your house. That's always the best kielbasa. Yeah. You can't have the kielbasa you love, Angela. Love the kielbasa you're with. Although I hate the, I hate the, actually I hate the premise of that song. I really hate the premise of that song. Don't you hate the premise of that song? <laughs> if you can't be with the one you love, really love the one you're with. Yes, I guess I'll just the weakest. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's fine. Anyway, doesn't make any sense to me. So anyway, so then you go back and then you develop. Now, by the way, for those of you that have never met Angela, like. Would you know not not a picky bone in Angela's body? No pickiness, no no nothing, right? So when I learned that she had just like developed uh, an allergy to dairy, first I thought she was kidding. I thought she was kidding me. You know what I mean? And then um, she's like, "No, I really have to change my my life around it." And kind of put you on this road that brought you where you are now. You want to talk about that at all? 
Yeah. So I started a blog that I called Goldenrod Pastries in like 2013, 2014, because, you know, I went to the French Culinary Institute. I'd been baking for myself my whole life. Everything was with butter, milk, cream, whatever. And like, I love to eat and I love cake. I love having dessert with every meal. It's how I was raised, believe it or not. And so I just realized that I had to start developing recipes that I could eat that didn't make me sick. So I, so I started my blog and I started posting these recipes, posting pictures, and pretty soon people started reaching out to me and saying, like, oh my gosh, well, I can't have dairy either. I can't have eggs or I'm gluten-free. I'm 35 years old. I haven't had a donut since I was six years old. I was like, oh my God, there's all these people who are totally being left out of like the food conversation. And as a chef, like first and foremost, like I want to feed people. And so... I started developing recipes and they started asking for birthday cakes and donuts and all these things that I had no idea how to make with their dietary restrictions. But I just kind of started going and trying to figure it out because when you love to feed people, there's nothing worse than not being able to feed them. And so I just kind of started. And within a year of launching the blog, I opened my first storefront um, in May of 2015 And we are, I would say, 95% dairy-free, gluten-free, or vegan gluten-free. And I think what's really, really cool about that is that most of our customers do not need or choose to eat that way. So we're making food that I think and I hope is really, really good just because it's good. Like we use sorghum flour for our cookies. And I think that makes like, to me, a better cookie than I was eating with all purpose flour. Or like we use a rice flour blend in our pound cakes. And I think that makes a super tender pound cake. And, you know, I just found that there's a way to make food actually taste as good, if not better, um, and still be able to feed more people. Yo, Matt, was Bob's Red Mill still a sponsor of the – I know not our program, but are they still on the, on the, on the Heritage at all? Mm, no, not, not currently. They, they should pay Angela money because people don't know how to rep stuff like sorghum flour properly. You know why? This is why I love Angela so much because, right, she's got a, a mission to, to use it like, or to not use or to be able to not use a certain subset of ingredients. But she always comes from a point of what's going to make this thing more delicious. It's never, it's never like some sort of goofy, like BS, like pseudo health mumbo jumbo. It's just like, here are the givens of what I can work with. How can I make the best possible, most delicious product? Not, you know, like, and that, like, to have someone whose guiding principle is the delicious, but then also a kind of take on like this subset of, of ingredients or take on certain constraints, I think is a, a, a really great attitude for today. And someone like Bob's Red Mill, who you bring up in your book, should pay you some money. That's all I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, we're, we're working on that. Um, but I think like what's really interesting in like the interviews that I've been having about the book with different people is they're like, oh, so why did you choose like this health focus? And I was like, it's not about health. Like if you look through this book and you eat our food, it has like a lot of fat and a lot of sugar in it. And as like a dairy-free fat, I really like shortening for a lot of different things and a lot of different reasons. It doesn't have off flavors like a lot of vegan butters do. And a lot of people just, when they're making food for dietary restrictions or dietary preferences, they leave out the fat and sugar. And like that is when it starts getting a bad reputation. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Right? Everyone's... Everyone's always known that shortening makes te- very good textures on things like biscuits and, and pie, pie crust. But 
I guess the gripe, there's two gripes, right? There's the health gripe, which I don't care about. I mean, whatever. You know what I mean? You know me. Yeah. And and then there is the neutrality argument, where it's like, if you can have the flavor of butter, I would choose the flavor of butter over the, some argue, superior texture of shortening and some of those things. Where, sure. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that butter has a better flavor than shortening. But if you take butter out of the equation, what you're left with is either shortening or butter alternatives like vegan butter alternatives and i personally haven't found any that don't create like a really intense off flavor yeah. and like when i started um baking dairy free and vegan it was just awful all i could taste was just like plastic well and, and you specifically say don't use fake butter like don't use spray that has fake butter flavor yeah because it's terrible that's the reason why not to use it's it. terrible and sometimes it has dairy products in it um oh, yeah. that's but another reason in but like even, the spray, you know, yeah. in the nonstick sprays but yeah. yeah like those vegan butters for me i just haven't found one that's like i mean both you're looking at also like cost effectiveness and accessibility and that's another thing with this book that i really think is important which is like so relevant right now is like financial accessibility for people. We have to get more people in the kitchen. Like I think that we have so many people in the kitchen right now. And if we give them financially accessible and, um, and technique accessible recipes, that's like so great. Why are we trying to create recipes that leave people out of the conversation as far as baking? Like get in the kitchen. Everybody wants to bake, make recipes, develop recipes that people can make with what they have and with, you know, hopefully um, an economic situation that, you know, it Thank doesn't require the most money for saying that that's incredible. It's an epidemic in the cocktail world right now with people posting these recipes that are like, Oh, you know, fat washed this, like all of these techniques that no home bartenders are ever going to use. It's like, just give people simple drinks right now. Well, that's the other no, thing, I, like, but, but yeah. that's what we do for a living Jack. So then I mean, exactly. not, you, you I have two livings, but yes. Yeah. Or like one I, now. you know, at the bakery, there's some stuff that we do that like technique wise or economically, it makes a lot more sense to do in a commercial setting. And yeah. while I was writing this book and talking to my editor and just thinking about like, actually, would I feel comfortable as Angela Garbett's giving these recipes to somebody and saying, oh yeah, go ahead and figure that out. But you have to go ahead. Like, yes, you do have to like go out of your way to get some of these gluten-free ingredients. But I, I actually recommend to people um, commercially available GF flour mixes as opposed to buying like a ton of different ingredients because it is financially so inaccessible for a lot of people. So I think you have to like when you're giving the general public information about your your skill and your art, like what what can we do to to make more people part of the conversation and make them comfortable? And like we can use those really cool techniques and the really expensive products at home for ourselves. Well, also, yeah. I, I noticed on, on your things, and I was making a note of it to myself, that, you know, you say that you've made all these recipes with commercial mixes, and so just, you know, like, your your go-tos that you do, you you use more of one than the other, one of Bob Redmill's um, flowers, and, see, New Life, Pamela's, and for a few things, King Arthur, but what I love about your book here is, is that you're, you say exactly why you use a particular flour for a particular application and then you give the main ingredients in case somebody wants to do a knockoff or figure out kind of what is in those flours to, to use them which I thought was a great great you know thing in the book but I was curious because you say you actually use them at the 
at the shop. And are those things still cost effective when you're doing it professionally, more so than just like trying to womp that stuff yourself? Or is it that you like the consistency of the mixes or what? Um, for the most part, it is more cost effective right now. Um, starting at the end of February and definitely going into March, we actually started making our own mixes because it became so much more expensive to buy these blends. So we did have to start making our own, but for the most part, like buying in the ingredients and, you know, we have a super small space, which I know you guys can relate to. And it actually was like cost effective for us to just buy these already made, but as things change, as supply chains change, like we're definitely going to have to look at that a little differently. I know places like King Arthur do 50 pound sacks, but I didn't know Bob's Red Mill did 50 pound sacks. Yeah, we get 25 pounds from Bob's Red Mill. Um, and yeah, it's great. We go through so much of it. But um, also, yeah, like the main ingredient list, I think is really important because if you're looking at your local co-op, like I know my local co-op has like some brands like I can't find elsewhere. But if I'm somebody looking at this book and I see this this blend at my co-op I can look back in the book and say okay well it's primarily has this in it and now I know that if xanthan gum is third on the list of ingredients then that's going to be like a pretty gummy flower so maybe I should find something else so I hope that it can be like a good guide for people and like teach them how to use what's available to them as well. Yeah. And so I, I, like all of your recipes, you write down kind of which one of the flowers you use. And, um, you know, I just would tell people, I think it's a very good way to, to do things is to like, let people know why you're using a particular kind of flower. I thought that was a nice, nice touch. One thing I have a question about is you write, and I've never used it before, uh, Pamela's gluten-free all-purpose baking flour. And you write in it that it's the hardest one of the ones to use that it can actually overmix. And then I looked at the ingredient list, overmix meaning you can overwork, because one of the advantages of gluten-free that you point out is that, you know, there's no gluten to either over or under work. So, you know, in a way, you know, it, it kind of frees you up in, 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 for some recipes in terms of worrying about it, uh, I don't know, toughening something like a cake or et cetera. But you write uh, that this particular flour can be overworked, and I've looked at the ingredients, brown rice flour, tapioca starch, white rice flour, potato starch, sorghum, guar gum, and guar gum. So what is it that overworks in that? Like, I'm wondering what it is about that particular mix. It's the gum. The guar? It's the gum. And I don't know if it's how the gums take up the, the liquid, and if they, like, I assume they just keep absorbing more liquid, um, but it just becomes a completely gummy mass. So we use Pamela's mostly for like cake batters. It makes really nice like layer cakes. Um, but if you, you know, you're trying to work out the the clumps in your batter, for example, if you don't like add your, your dry and wet and dry and wet, like just right with Pamela's, that guar gum is going to just like really kind of seize up. Guar is, a, a, yeah, guar is an awesome word, by the guar. way. This episode brought to you by Bend to Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. I recently received the Essentials box, and one of my favorite items in that box was the Jimmy Red Grits from Geechee Boy Mill. And these Jimmy Red Grits are, first of all, it would be hard to overstate how delicious these grits are, especially, I mean, a lot of you out there might never have even made grits in your life, it, you know, if you come from somewhere that's not a, a, a grit place. And uh, and if you have, you're probably used to just kind of buying grits in those kind of round paper sleeves in the supermarket. And this is really not a comparable 
product. Just the kind of punch corn flavor you're gonna get out of these grits uh, is kind of out of this world. And uh, I did these in a rice cooker. I did them with milk. And then after they had cooked out, I folded in a little bit of grated cheese, some shrimp that I had cooked with, uh, with bacon. So I crisped up the bacon, took it aside, cooked the shrimp up in the bacon grease, then took that, folded it in with some cheese and a little bit of uh, garlic and good to go. That was my kind of lighter version of shrimp, shrimp and grits made with uh, Jimmy Red Grits. Delicious. Go to bentotable.com to start your own monthly subscription. Use the discount code HRN to get $20 off a new subscription and Bend to Table will donate $10 to support cooking issues and all of HRN's programming. Uh, so one thing that uh, we'll go back, we'll go back a little bit because we got into the weeds on flour and we didn't even get to talk about the kind of the basics of the book or the, the stuff beforehand. But in the very introduction, I think you have the, the kind of pull out quote at the very beginning that kind of shows your attitude, which is the same attitude actually that we have at uh, existing conditions, I hope, is that I want, and this is your quote, I want you to have a seat at our table. In other words, you want everyone to be able to come in to Goldenrod and enjoy what you're doing kind of no matter what. Inclusive baking, which is, I guess, did you come up with that term? Um, I didn't hear it before me, but maybe, some, yeah, I think I did. So, and I, I love that because that's kind of the same mentality that, you know, we have at least this go around, you know, now at XCon in terms of non-alcoholic drinks is just why would you, why would you not want someone to feel welcome, right? For sure. It's like, you know, there's always going to be some allergy or some restriction or preference that like you can't meet, which is so frustrating. But for the most part, it's like, you don't want to turn people away. And like the joy that somebody feels and that you can see when they're like, oh man, you have something non-alcoholic and like, who cares what their reasons are for not drinking alcohol. And it's like the same thing with dietary stuff. I always hear people say, oh, well, you know, they're probably just faking it or making it up. And it's like, I don't really care. Like that's a person's choice. Like if they choose not to drink alcohol, if they choose not to eat gluten or dairy or whatever, that's like totally cool. And that's none of my business. And my only goal is to make food pastries more inclusive for people. And I don't care what your reasons are um, of why you don't eat these things. And that's your choice. And I want I don't want food to feel so exclusive. I want it to be more welcoming. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that is, uh, everyone should feel that way. Um, That's wonderful. Yeah. So, and then yeah. uh, another thing it's, uh, you know, I think it's kind of cool is that the, you write predominantly, but is it all, like you, you have a thing, woman powered baking, right? And like most of the staff, or I don't know, maybe at this point, all of your staff, I know at one point, I think all of your staff was, was women. You want to talk about that kind mm -hmm. of, that, yeah, that kind of business. My wife is the same way with her architecture business. She actually runs an all women's architecture business and she loves it. Yeah. So we were all, um, all women until about a year ago. And now we have a couple of guys working for us, which is super awesome. Um, I actually doubled my staff at the beginning of March, right before I opened my second lo location this year. <laughs> um, great month to open a second location. <laughs> um, and like the woman power thing, like I just woke up one day and realized that, you know, I was in a kitchen setting I was in a life setting where I was surrounded by all women. And not only did I feel comfortable, but I felt empowered and I felt um, like these women were there to support me and not, I, you know, as women talking to a group of guys here, but like as women, I think that, you know, for a long time, the idea was there was only room at the table for 
you know, one woman in each field to be doing well. And I think that conversation is changing and it's a really damaging and hurtful sort of commentary. But I think that, you know, for me feeling empowered by this group of women I was working with really allowed me to like be more creative and be more ambitious with what I was doing with my business. And so I try to talk about that in the book because I hope that, you know, some people who read this, some young women who feel you know, a little bit lost or, you know, hurt by other people in their lives or for whatever reason are looking for a little bit of inspiration and hope, they can sit down with Perfectly Golden and it can be something that really inspires them to not only invest in other women, but also feel like they deserve that as well. But yeah, that's that's something that's pretty important. To me. Yeah. I mean, I, but I should, I mean, I know she's not in the food industry. That's why she hasn't come on. But Jen, my wife, has like a you know, voice a lot of the same thing. It's just kind of a different, what she says, it's like a different feel to the, to the business. And it, you know, it's something that she thinks is super valuable. And I, you know, so I have to agree with her because she's right about 99.9% of the things. I think Jane, that she says. I think that, um, I think Jen's pretty much right about it all. <laughs> I mean, Yes. I mean, she's maybe a little conservative on what she wants me to do with my phys- physical human flesh sack because she's worried I'm going to break it. But, um, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I'm still upset. I'm still upset she didn't let you deep fry yourself. I know it. Well, the thing <laughs> is, if, if I hadn't lit myself on fire so badly with the St. George piece, I think she would have let me deep fry myself. But the fact that I so badly misjudged. Uh, what it was going to be like to catch on fire, um, <laughs> I think kind of, you know, poisoned the well a little bit on um, trusting my quote unquote engineering skills when it came to the safety of, of my human form. <laughs> so, I mean, I can see where she's coming from on that one, but. I mean, I can't think of a more horrible demise than, yeah, the fire suit, f- the fryer suit failing. Like, can you imagine no, that would having be real a, bad. A, a leak spring and just having the vessel that you're inside of slowly fill with boiling oil. It would be oh, real oh. bad. God. So I mean, you know, Angela, you'll you'll sympathize with this. So I was using my I was using <laughs> my super duper, you know, like ridiculously expensive waffle iron. Also not a good time to have bought that waffle iron. But anyway, so like in a Liege waffle, there's always melted sugar and butter in the waffle iron, and you just let it ride. And so like you know, last the waffle n waffle n minus one contributes its melted sugar to waffle n and waffle n plus one, along with extra butter that's leaking out of the double butter briachi dough as you're making it. Anyways, so so I was trying to get something out. And I missed and dipped my pinky into the molten sugar well of the thing. Oh, and, oh man. Nothing's more fun than a molten sugar burn. Am I right? That is not a good burn. They, the first thing you always want to do with a sugar burn is like they told us in school. I always remember this. The first, if you get a, a sugar burn on your finger, the first thing you want to do is like put it in your mouth. And that's the last thing you want to do. Because your mouth is warm, you mean? You just like... I don't know, just a weird reflex, but... You know what I did? I cursed. Yeah. I cursed myself. It was my fault. I should not have done it. You know, I really think that, honestly, you invested in that waffle iron at the perfect time because now you have Liege waffles whenever you want. Um, I think I ruined three just, like, Cuisinart Belgian waffle makers making Liege waffles over the years because I just never wanted to, like, fork over the cash for a real one. Like, that sugar is no joke. Yeah. You know what, though? 
you, like, I would love for you to figure out the goldenrod version of the Liege waffle and get you one of them Liege waffle irons. Because, first of all, like, the things that they sell in the U.S. as Belgian waffle make, it's an insult to the entire country of Belgium. Now, Belgium does... Now, John, Matt kicked John off the radio program today. So, you know, he can't sit here and defend his Belgian self. But, like, in the way that Canadian bacon that they serve here is an insult to Canadians and their, what they call bacon, like, uh, Belgian waffle as we make it is a freaking... It's a freaking insult, man. Well, when you come back to New York, you know, you can, um, I'll get the extra butter out of my iron and you, you can, we'll, we'll run through some stuff. Sounds great. Uh, now, one bone to pick before I go further. You use cup measurements at the shop? <laughs> oh, yeah. That is a bone that a lot of people picked with me in the process of writing this book. Um... Yeah, I don't know. So sue me. Good answer. I mean, I don't want to sue you, but Boom. I mean, I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I know you have at least one of the medium-sized Hobarts, and you're showing up there with a cup measure and like leveling off and like <laughs> whipping your flower bucket up so that you can get the loft exactly the same way each time, and doing the roop dupa scoop drop and level. Well, I mean. In the real life, or do you have like a cup measure the size of my head? Um, well, we have for sure converted some to just like, you know, we use like some 25 quart containers. And so I know how many cups are in there or not 25 quart, 25 cup containers. Um, but, you know, we're not doing a lot of leveling off. Um, we're just really kind of, it's the Wild West. Yeah. Well, you know what they say about Nebraska? It's the Wild West possibilities yeah the possibilities are endless endless i wish you guys had kept that motto the the motto is so much better than your new motto here's a good nebraska story dave connection he actually went to school with the mayor of lincoln nebraska that's true lyrian mayor lyrian yeah 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 how's she doing over there she's killing it she we have a really conservative uh state government who is uh, really just going ahead and opening the state back up starting next week when our cases are like, I mean, just really out of their, it's out of control. Um, and so obviously not a good time to open the, up the state, but Lyrian's holding strong and really trying to like keep her control over our city at least and um, keep it as safe as possible. Well, she's a, she's good people. Say howdy for me when you, when you see her. I will. One quick question. On the same page where you say that you use cup measurements, I'm still picking that bone. You also say something about um, on your yeastos that they should be impossibly fluffy before they go in the oven. And my question is on proofing in general, when you're doing gluten-free, do you proof differently from when you're doing a recipe with gluten or not in terms of how much loft you get before you put it in to the oven? Yeah. So it's funny you pick out that term specifically because that was actually coined by Mindy Lavoff herself, one of uh, the people who worked for Dave and was in the internship program when I was there. Um, she coined the impossibly fluffy term. Um, so gluten-free for sure has a little bit in the recipes in the book. They have, we don't do like a first proof, like you make the dough. For example, if you're making cinnamon rolls, you make the dough and then you just immediately start, um, portioning it out and start rolling it out for buns. So like there's no first proof. Um, and then like what we do at the bakery is we 
put them in the freezer and we take them out and proof them as we, as we need them before we bake them. So it's definitely a similar process in the sense that, you know, we want to get some good rise. If you don't get good rise from your yeast products that are gluten-free before they go in the oven, that's when you're going to end up with like a, a hockey puck. And so I end up using a little bit more yeast than a lot of gluten-free yeast buns that I have recipes that I've looked at because you really have to make sure that you get that rise. And with a little bit of extra yeast in your gluten-free products, you're going to, you're going to see that. So we still do the, the rise before it bakes, but there's not a first proof. Uh, one other question on ingredients before we go on to main, main sections of the book and, and whatnot. Um, when, cause one of the nice things about the book is that there's a little checkoff thing calling what's called you do you, where you say you can either, you can make this recipe completely traditionally and some you can't, some only, you know, don't work traditionally. And you, but you can, you say like kind of which, which ones you can do. So it's like a pick, pick your own on the whole thing. But in your ingredients section, you say that when you're going to put dairy milk back into a recipe that was formulated for either almond milk, which is your typical one, or coconut, depending, that you use 1% to 2% instead of regular whole, is that because, even though, you know, I find them execrable, is, is that because they more closely match the recipes that have been tested with the non-dairy yes, milks? Yes, yeah, that is exactly it. So, like, a whole milk is going to is not going to have the same consistency as like an almond milk or an oat milk or um, a, yeah. a coconut milk. Oh, and by the way, you know how I know we're the, exactly the same about a lot of things? I read one section. Uh, I got to find the exact quote. But, oh, here it is. Um, you write, um, you'll, know when, you'll know when it's done. Speaking about when employees first come in and start working for you and they're like, how long is this? How long is this guy a cook or how much you say they saw recipes at Goldenrod as they saw recipes that read simply salt or vanilla or even spices with no measurements listed. They asked where to find working oven timers as the one in our convection oven had recently stopped working as they all do. Uh, you'll know when it's done is what you told them, which at first they didn't believe and looked at me stunned. And so it's like, I think people don't understand, especially in, in baking or I know people always get on me about, um, get on me about like, cause like, you know, my job theoretically is to be precise and scientific about everything. But like my standard amount, how much, how much some. salt should I add? The some. right amount, you idiot. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, some, the correct amount. Exactly. How long am I supposed to bake it till it's done? And like, it's, that's what makes it so hard. Like, I mean, what, when you're writing a book, a baking book for me, what's really challenging is like actually giving those precise times specifically or temperatures because I do not have your oven. I do not have your kitchen. And so I think what's really important and what I really tried to do with this book was to give people the skills to understand what it looks like when it's done and what it feels like when it's done, because it is impossible for me to tell you exactly at what moment, at what minute, at which minute you should take it out of the oven. And that's why timers are irrelevant in the kitchen. So like if it breaks, then it's like the sooner the better. Um, but yeah, my, my poor- Especially- Go ahead. Oh, in, in home kitchens, when most humans don't have oven thermometers and don't even know how hot their oven is to begin with. Yeah. I mean, in, mo in, in most home kitchens, you can almost bake by smell because the kitchen, the extraction, the hoods are so bad in kitchens that you can pretty much smell when something's yeah. done. You know what I mean? And a it's like things. I always tell my like, my bakers too, and and this is a little 
this is a little bit different in a home kitchen, but um, you should always kind of get in the mindset that something's in the oven. And I always kind of, I, I tell my bakers like, we're not using timers because that's not really going to help you, but just always be thinking like, Oh, every five minutes, every, however often do I have anything in the oven? Is there anything that I should check? And when you're at home, it's like, once you start getting more comfortable, you'll get to that point where you're like, Oh yeah, I have something in the oven. And maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just kind of a freak, but you'll smell it and you'll start to get familiar. And like, it's a very sensory thing. Like, yes, you can use a timer, but when something is done, smell the air smell like and remember what it smells like and that way when you're just like kicking it on your couch you can smell and be like oh yeah this is what it smells like when it's done but like that that little genie with a baseball bat that hits you in the back of your head when you're cooking to it's like hey you idiot you haven't checked on the oven in a while can you teach someone to have that yes you can i have seen it be taught huh huh yeah i mean and it comes from a lot of years and or months of me being like hey you have stuff in the oven because I'm always thinking about it. And so the last thing they want is for me to remind them again that they have something in the oven. So they start remembering before I remind them. It's like sense of urgency. Yeah, it's difficult yeah. to teach, but it's possible. Some people have it more innately than others, but no one is just born with that, you know, I must continue to work at all times. You have to. I also have really, really good bakers. So that might be part of it too. I'm sure, I'm sure that uh, no shortage of people want to work with you uh, over there. Impossible to understate, yeah, the importance of having a good team. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's the best thing in the world. You know, I'm sure you're a very good leader, and so you can get a good team, which yeah, is we you try know, half to. of it, you know? We try to, for sure. So then you write, and uh, I keep on saying I'm going to get into the meat of the book, and then I never do because I'm still on the like, ingredient section. You use a tip that obviously I agree with, which is uh, salt all the time, always salt. But before you say anything... I have a specific question for you, and since you are the queen of making sure everyone has a place at the table, hopefully you can answer this question uh, that came in on Twitter this morning for you from uh, Darren Vengroff. Um, any tips for baking uh, for people on very low-sodium diets? Potassium-based leaveners are available and are sort of okay if you adjust formulas based on the molecular weight of the salts, but it's hard to replace uh, in yeast breads and also performs and yeast breads also perform differently without salt, though using a long low-temp proofing seems to help somewhat, but the flavor of the wheat doesn't come through in the same way. That any is suggestions? such a tough one. I really feel for people who you know, it's, there's low sodium and then there's what that guy just wrote in. And, um, that, like I said a little bit ago, there's always going to be something that we just can't, I, I, we just can't figure out. And that's one thing that, you know, I don't have a good answer for. But is, is it one of those things where it's always in the back of your mind and someday you'll, you'll solve it? I mean, that I have problems like one that. in particular is not, um, we haven't had too many people come in with that, but, um, I mean, now it's going to be always in the back of my mind for sure. Yeah. Well, when you solve it, you're going to let us know. I'll let right? Darren know when I figure it out. Hey, how come banana bread takes so long to bake? It's just real wet, I guess. But it's like impossibly long, right? It looks like it's done and it's not, and it's not even half done And I mean, it yet. just gets so that. dark too. And I think that like a lot of people are like, well, it's done. I guess I'll just take it out because it looks done. And it's really just mostly not ever done if it looks done. <laughs> I know. It, it tastes so good and it's so theoretically easy, but it just gives me agita all the time I how know, long it forever. takes to cook. Huh. I mean, that little freaking loaf pan, 50 minutes, 50 something like, minutes. It's like a joke, right? Yeah, it's good. Yeah. And after like 25 minutes, you're like, hey, it's already risen yeah. all the way. It's done. And then I'm like, oh my God, it's going to burn. So then I put aluminum foil over the top because it freaks me out. 
The whole thing freaks me out. So, Excuse me, Ajita. Hate it. Dave Arnold, Love the bread. The, the thing that really gets him is the banana bread. He can he can do just anything else, but it's the thing that gets him is the banana bread. Yeah, yeah. Light me on fire. Toss me off a building. Fine. The banana bread. How long it takes to bake? Kill me. Kill me. Yeah. Oh, by the way, another good another good tip you give, even for home people. A lot of times, people like, uh, for instance, your Alton Brown and whatnot. They'll tell you not to buy kitchen equipment to have that they consider a unitasker or, or whatnot. But you write in making the cookie section, go get you a number 24 scoop. I would say get a range of dosing uh, of uh, dosing scoops in your house. No one's ever said to me, hey, you know what I, you know what pisses me off? That uh, I can now dose out muffins and cookies accurately. It's like a gift to have those at home. And I, I actually don't. Up until recently, up until the last month, I haven't been baking at home for like the past five years. And I'm so pissed I don't have my dosing mechanisms at home. It is the one thing I really, really want in my kitchen. And I go through the supplies section in detail and very clearly say you don't have to spend a ton of money on your supplies. But the things that I do encourage people to get are actually things that are going to make a difference. Yeah, if you've never had the dosing scoops in your house and you do any kind of baking whatsoever, you're going to you will thank Angela for this tip. By the way, don't use them on ice cream. They actually suck for for untempered ice cream. No one in the world who's not a pastry chef tempers their freaking ice cream before they scoop it and dosers are rancid, rancid at going in because you always rip the little the little swipe doodle out when you're going through uh, ice cream that's too hard because guess what people, that's not what they're for. Agree. Um, so I will, I will also, uh, I want, I want to, cause I don't want to forget this before, before we make it that Angela has the greatest quote of all times in the book. And the quote is this, there are many different kinds of muffin people. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to all think about that mm -hmm. statement and ask yourself, what kind of muffin person are you? Because there are so many different kinds yeah, of muffins. Can I, if I can just quickly tell you about a kind of muffin person I met once at my store. Um, she came up to me at, at the counter and there's, you know, the couple feet divider of the counter between us. And she said, so what kind of muffins do you have today? And I was like, well, I mean, I think they were like blueberry and raspberry or something with crumble on top. And it's like, and I told her and she's like, so that's just like what you have today and I was like yeah that's what we have today and she's like so what do you do do you just like wake up in the morning and just decide this is the kind of muffin you're gonna make today and I was like yeah it is I guess and she reached across the two or three foot counter and put a thumbs down inches away from my face wow what? <laughs> 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 Did you? that's my muffin that story did you ever find out what kind of muffin she was expecting? It's just she sounds like a poppy seed person. It's super hard to say. She for sure left. Um, and yeah, there, it's hard to know what kind of muffin people you're going to run into. We have had tons of different kinds of muffin people in my store. Yeah. I mean, everyone has in their mind what they want their muffin to be. Or like, you know, crumble on top. Do they want like the crunchy sugar on top? Do they want like chunks in there do they want it to be smooth like my bakers really don't like chunks in their muffins i am a big chunk in my muffin person like i want to find different things throughout my muffin and so that is like our our muffin standard at the store and they're always bummed when i'm like oh wow you went ahead and just like made those berries into like preserves for the muffins huh 
And it's like fine. They can do that. There's different kinds of muffin people. But I just think it's so fine, fun to find those little craters throughout your muffin. And there's also people who like different form factors. There's the there's the uh, like in in paper, like almost like Italian looking muffin people. Then there's the the giant exploded mushroom cloud top. I'm one of those people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I even have, I think I mentioned this on the air once, I have a Chicago metallic cheat muffin tin pan that has little indents for the giant exploded mushrooms so that they don't spread past where they're supposed to on the thing. And if you dose your muffin batter just right, you can't tell that I've cheated because there's only a little bit of an up curve on the side of where the exploded mushroom head is. It's pretty. It's a pretty key invention. But I, like I had, I don't have my little doser at home and I had to do, I did a video shoot yesterday at home, um, for a recipe for, for the muffin recipe from the book. And I used two spoons to scoop it in and my muffins just were like insane, exploding in every direction. In a good way or a bad way? I didn't like it. Uh, Jack, are you ready to have your mind blown by this tip that Angela gives in the book? Yeah, yeah, blow it. You get a cake. Someone gets you a cake, you make a cake. All right? This has happened. Okay. This is what has happened. Okay. What do you do? You, you slice it now and freeze frozen slices. Oh, my God. It's such a good idea. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Genius. That's the smartest. That's, you are so correct about my mind being blown. Wow. That can't be new that's information right. to you. That's it right. is. It, that's brand new information. Incredible. Oh, come on. No, because you don't I'm think so, about I it. I just ordered a copy of the book and a, a friend, t- like, this is this is the tip that I'm going to use to sell your book to the masses because, wow, that's brilliant. I mean, it's like, what do you want to do? You have a leftover cake. Especially you know, in the time of COVID. Yeah. yeah. Especially in a time of any time in your whole freaking life. If you want a slice of cake and you froze the rest of a birthday cake and you're like, oh, man, I really want a slice right now. Here are my options. Shave off a tiny piece and eat it frozen or wait for hours. You don't want to do either of those. You want to eat a slice of cake right now. Oh, my gosh. And it's a a hurdle that keeps me from making cakes in the home because I'm like, oh, well, geez, you know, if I bake this whole cake, I'm living alone right now. I'm going to have to eat the whole dang thing. This it's brilliant. I you're killing me. I, I feel like an idiot. I feel so foolish for not having come up with this. You're killing me. Wow. No, you're, I mean, you're keeping me alive, so. <laughs> hey, can I give you guys another, can I give, give you guys another mind blow that's not from this book, but that I recently learned, and I can only mention it because it's from a future classics in the field that I didn't want to mention when Matt from Kitchen Arts and Letters was on last week, but I, I ordered a copy of the book, so I no longer have to worry about the three copies that are online now getting sold because I've already purchased my copy. You ready for a tip? Yeah. Tip away. Guy, guy's name was um, uh, was Monroe Boston Strauss, the Pie King of Los Angeles. Wrote a book called Pie Marches On that never got hugely popular because every recipe in the book is written for ten pies or more because he was writing for commercial establishments and not for people cooking at home. He was rediscovered by Shirley Corriher, who's also going to have at Classics in the Field, uh, hopefully at some point soon. Anyways, maybe when Harold McGee comes on next, we'll we'll do Shirley Corriher, which would be fun. But um, or maybe have her on because she's still around. I just don't know her that well. But get this tip. So all my life, I've been blind baking crusts, and I've been doing the weights. I've been doing the blah, the double panning, all this other stuff. The guy's like, no, no, no. 
Now, what you do is, is you turn the pie pan upside down and bake it on the outside of the freaking pie pan. Oh. Boom! That's crazy. Right? That is wild. Right? And he's like, listen, I'm a professional. Yeah, he's like, I have like, I have so many different kinds of pie pans. So I have a slightly smaller one. I turn it upside down. I bake it. And then if I need it to have the structure of a pie pan later, I can always invert it into a bigger pie pan. Dun, 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 dun. No shrink, no puff, no shrink, no puff. Because how many times Whoa. in your life have you blind baked something and the, and, and the, freaking, the freaking crust slides down into your pan? Oh, a lot. Or puffs up crazy? I mean, or I just choose not to blind bake and... You want, another, you want another tip from my yeah. man, uh, Monroe Boston Strauss? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Keep him coming. So, He's clearly, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, did, first of all, he, Angela, I'm, like, you you need to look up this dude's book because it's on the internet. Uh, you can read the whole book on the internet. But, like, the, the way this guy goes into depth on particular fruit fillings, crazy. But check this. So his graham cracker crust was originally developed as a, a moisture management problem. And, you know, I'm concerned about that for the Miracle of Moisture Management book, which I may or may not be writing. However... Here's how he does it. He has two different main kinds of graham cracker crusts. And uh, it depends on whether you want to do one side or both. And he has very particular things. And you're like, what do you mean one side or both? Because what he does is he makes graham crackers, makes a traditional pie crust, and then rolls uses graham cracker as the flour on the board and rolls graham cracker into a traditional pie crust. Wouldn't that be delicious for so many different things? Yes. 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 Who is this guy? I mean, he's long since dead, but I mean... Oh, come on. I mean, how do I not know about this? I am 49. I'm 49. How do I not know this stuff? Oh, my God. What year did this book come out? It was originally written in the 30s. It was reprinted in the or 30s or late 30s, early 40s, and it was reprinted once, I believe, in the 50s and maybe once again in the 60s. But they just never did a big run of it because it was only for a commercial people. Literally every recipe is like makes 10 pies. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that is awesome. Amazing is, book. You should all look it up. That's such a, a tip. Uh, Dave, we got we to gotta bounce. Well, no, no, I got I gotta, I gotta, well, first of all, I have questions, obviously, I didn't get to. Let me ask one more reader question. Uh, Eileen writes in, because this Angela will uh, be good for this. I am typically pro-egg, but my friend thinks she has an allergy and is anti-egg, but we're still friends, and she's trying to make a coconut bread that calls for five eggs. That's all the information she gave me. Do you know of any substitute she can use in that recipe that might yield something that's in the ballpark of delicious as opposed to gross? Would you use your flax eggs for that? Or I know some of your recipes you... You say you can substitute eggs and some that you yeah, don't. Yeah, I don't know. know. I mean? It really, really depends. Like, you could give it a shot. Um, sometimes, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Does it have coconut flour? Is it just a regular quick bread that has coconut in it? I think it's too hard to tell without actually mm. seeing the recipe. All right. Well, maybe she can write back in and I'll, I'll send it to you. What if you did, like, a couple, a couple flax eggs and then like a little more, I assume there's some kind of milk as a liquid in there and then like because if you did five flax eggs it's just going to be like a really gummy mess so maybe do two instead of all five and then bulk it up with a little more milk um uh, matt could i have a couple minutes to ask some specific questions about the book because i don't get to talk to uh angela that often a little bit come on man i want to ask her about some of these recipes man come Ten, on man five minutes yeah all right 
peach coffee cake, your grandma's recipe that you redid and you and you, like you said it was one of the last things that she ever had. Is this one of the recipes we need to make out of your out of your book? You have to make the peach coffee cake. I mean, and I think that you will agree with me on this, Dave. You can only use canned peaches for this recipe. So it it is a yeast uh, dough on the bottom, and then some canned peaches, and then a coconut oil crumble on top. It's kind of like an Eastern European um, style thing. She was a Polish immigrant. And I don't know if she made this recipe up or if somebody gave it to her, but it is one of the best things. I have tried it with fresh peaches. I have tried canning my own peaches. It really, really benefits from like an actual canned peach because what kind of like leaks out of those peaches makes like almost like a custardy sort of uh, vibe with the dough. It's super good. Jack, when is canned peach season? Always. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but this it points out one of the things I love about the the, the book is is that, and I, you know, hopefully we're not going to have time, I guess, to talk about it. But like, it's it's a super interesting combination of what you would call kind of high concept. I mean, remember, like you know, a- Angela was working at like three Michelin star restaurants, and like high concept, and also really homey, like her past like the future, like, so you'll have a recipe that was her grandma's, and then at the same time, you'll have a recipe for cardamom, pistachio, strawberry, rose, uh, you know, you know, uh, cake. So it's like super interesting kind of combination of things, which I always enjoy to see how someone thinks on different levels and with different, in different kind of flavor regimes. All right, so since they're gonna get cut off, cut, cut off quick, turtle, turtle cookies. So these are basically brown alloys that are cooked in a waffle iron for only like 60 seconds. Are they still kind of raw in the middle? No, they're not raw at all. They're like fully cooked little. So it's like a, a brownie batter that you basically put into a standard waffle iron, not Belgian waffle iron. And um, they just bake, they just cook in like 60 seconds. And it is one of the best things. And then you Turtle put peanut butter frosting on top. One of my um, favorite things that my mom made growing up. All right. Get this, people, because this is not something I would have thought was delicious, but you go out of your way to say it is, so I'm going to ask you about it. Buckwheat chocolate chunk cookies. Oh, yeah. See, it's not what I would think of buckwheat. What do you think, Jack? How does that sound? I think it sounds delicious. What do you have against buckwheat? I like buckwheat. You know I like buckwheat, except for when it's made into uh, you know soba noodles and then someone rinses all the flavor out of it so that it tastes like it's made with nothing. That's the only time I don't like it. But, uh, I mean, I love buckwheat, I but I just... You're not the only one who thinks that so my husband was like not totally on board with them my staff was not totally on board with them it was one of the demos i did for um for charleston wine and food last year and i was like this is going to be perfect this is like such a cool thing the grain is so delicious and um i started making it for my staff and made it for my husband they're like holy you know this is like very very good and i think i specifically say in the recipe that if you chop up chocolate like a chocolate bar or even chop up your chocolate chips you're going to kind of get that chocolate dust throughout the cookie as well. And I'm not like a chocolate chip person um, in my cookies, but this, when the dust kind of goes throughout that really like nutty buckwheat, super soft cookie, it's, it's super yeah. soft. Okay. Chocolate thunder cake from the book, thun- from the book thunder cake by Patricia Polacco. Pal- I've yeah. never heard of this book. You want to give me like a, a quick thing on this book and this, and do you like this recipe? Yeah. Is this a good recipe or is this just your childhood talking? Uh, is it, I made it my own from this childhood book. So I used to read that book a lot with my grandma, my mom. So it's about a little girl who's a thunderstorm starts. She's super scared. And to distract her, her, 
Um, her grandma says, we have to go around the farm and get all of the ingredients to make thunder cake. And we have to get all of the ingredients and make the cake and get it in the oven before the rain starts. So it's like the grandma's way of distracting the little girl. And so they run around the whole farm and they get like tomatoes because there's tomato puree in the cake and eggs and all of this stuff. It's just a very, very sweet story. And the recipe is just a really, really rich chocolate cake that I recommend with chocolate ganache. Good chocolate it up. Speaking of chocolate on chocolate on chocolate, what about your babe squares? That looks like death by chocolate. That is definitely death by chocolate. That's something that's like a little too much chocolate for me, but it's a chocolate almond shortbread crust with chocolate ganache filling and then a chocolate crumble on top. Sounds like that recipe could use some chocolate in it. What do you think? I think that it should just definitely have more chocolate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, since I'm on a time schedule here. So funerals and brownies. Talk to me about funerals and brownies. Um, uh, this is just a great chocolate is a great brownie recipe. It's super fudgy. If you're a fudgy brownie person, cause there are different kinds of brownie people, um, with walnuts in it. And I made them for my grandma Cariato's funeral and they became the brownie for funerals. I made hundreds of them for this funeral. And my mom was like, yo, those funeral brownies were pretty good. And so we just started calling them funeral brownies. And my editor reached out recently and she was like, probably not the best time for that recipe. What well, or the best time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Matt, uh, nuts and brownies, yes or no? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Hmm. I don't ever hear someone have such a... Jack, yes or no on the nuts? Sometimes. What that is with you people? Usually people are either like nuts or no nuts. Very rarely well, I do mean, I, I I like a wide variety. I don't eat a lot of baked goods, but when I do, I eat them sort of broadly. Like I enjoy many and I like a wide variety. I think... Coffee is a bigger every time inclusion in brownies for me than nuts are. I have never put them in my own brownies, but yeah, I put I put coffee and cookies a bunch too. I, I like where your head's at, Jack. Angela, you said that you hadn't heard of this cake till recently, and I haven't heard of this cake until yesterday when you sent me a copy of your book, Hummingbird Cake. Good recipe? Interesting? Talk to me about Hummingbird Cake. It's a great recipe. It's like a banana cake that has pineapple, um, nuts, and coconut in it. How could that be a bad recipe? Doesn't sound, oh my Sounds God, great. are you ready for this? Boston Monroe Strauss, or Monroe Boston Strauss, but Pie March is on. Remember this guy we're talking about? He, yeah. he makes a banana cream, uh, he makes a banana cream pie with pineapple juice as the liquid in the crust and a what? little bit of pineapple in it. So he, he has, he's down with that pineapple banana oh action God, too. Oh my God, that's brilliant. This is, this is that guy who released a book in the 30s? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, all right, now banana cream pie, king of pies. What? Everything about banana, pies. Yeah. Bana banana cream pie is the king of pies, though. That's really? my my hot take. Okay, so this guy Strauss, not because we're talking about Angela today, not about Strauss. Strauss literally invented the chiffon pie. Whoa. I mean, crazy. Anyway, uh, cheesecake. I noticed you have the cheesecake recipe in, but you haven't figured out a way to undairy that sucker. Yeah, I mean, you could. A lot of people use like tofu. That's not really my jam. I would rather just make something that I necess can't necessarily eat that is just really delicious, but it satisfies the gluten-free crowd because it has um, a nut crust. So, you know, sometimes things just are what they are. Yeah. Uh, your coconut cake, pretty cake or prettiest cake? Prettiest. Yeah, that cake is crazy. <laughs> um, also, by the way, for people, uh, like a, a baller move ends the book with an essay from her mom. Sick move. Dude, did you read that essay? Yeah. It's so yeah. good. But I've never seen that move. It's such a sick move. 
So my mom is a journalist and a technical writer by trade for 40 years or whatever. And you can tell our writing styles are so different. I'm a very emotional, sentimental writer. Hers, it's just facts. And it is awesome. She talks about my grandma living through the Spanish flu epidemic. Um, it's, it's a really, especially with Mother's Day coming up and with everything that's going on right now, I feel like such a, I feel really lucky to have that in yeah. there. No, it's definitely, definitely very cool. Um, next, like, I know they're kicking me off here, but um, I didn't answer any of your questions that are cocktail-related people. We'll get it next time. Maybe Jack will come back on and, and answer it. I need someone. I tell you what. I got a lot of free time. I need someone in Cooking Issues land to help Milo's from Toronto who has uh, wants to make Nocino. Now, those those green walnuts are coming into season now, so he probably needs, or soon, so he probably needs recommendations fairly soon. So if uh, someone could uh, send in um, Nocino uh, suggestions, that would be... Uh, appreciated i feel like i could talk to you all day about this uh about this book and oh what what about the fact that you bake your donuts though one more bone to pick bake donuts come on man i know but do you know how expensive it is to get another four feet on your hood to get a fryer underneath i will accept this as an answer but I'm uh <laughs> rolling around in dollar bills and i can add another four feet to my hood whenever i want this is okay okay you're as usual you are you are correct um let me see what what else oh also one more i love that you call out see the thing is is like what's hilarious she calls out biscotti and for those of you that are my age right biscotti was the 90s pastry like par excellence like you could not like walk out of your the way that you walk out of your apartment now and you trip on somebody's spent mask and like glove and all sorts of medical waste all over the streets that's the way it used to be at stores and biscotti everyone is everywhere mostly really bad ones and honestly that was the one thing that my wife used to like to bake in the 90s was the old cooks illustrated i believe it was uh biscotti recipe which was actually quite good but i love like the little stories how you point out like kind of how dated the bis the biscotti is and you're like let's bring biscotti back i like that there's nothing wrong with biscotti there is nothing wrong with it. although are you a dip or a not dip i'm actually a not dip it kind of depends for me Sometimes i just don't like uh, I, I, get, I, don't, I don't want all that stuff smearing on my face. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna bite into it, and it's gonna be hard as hell, and I'm gonna have that right, I don't then also want a smear of chocolate around my face. I would rather just eat some chocolate and then crunch on the on the biscotti. Yeah, it kind of depends what kind of biscotti you're eating too. And if you're going to dip the biscotti into something else, yeah, you definitely don't want the chocolate if you're going to do the coffee dip. Not that I ever. Yeah, do. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm not a coffee dip because I like I like the whole teeth teeth crushed thing okay listen on your buns i know you're known for your buns you have two different bun recipes because in your mind you can choose to either not have gluten or not have egg but you may not choose both right unfortunately that is where we are right now mm -hmm. you feel like you're going to uh, get past that at a certain point or is that just not I, a problem I, you're I focused so. on now that we're doing you know, with everything going on in supply chains, we're going to, I feel like, have to make a lot of different decisions. So hopefully it will give us a little bit more time. And now that, you know, I really thankfully got the um, the PPP loan, so I'm able to bring some people back, and that's some testing that they can do before we're safe to open. Cool. Um, which recipes do you think are actually better gluten-free? Which I style of recipes? 
banana bread is really great, gluten-free. Um, the pound cake recipe that's in there, better gluten-free. I prefer the cookies. Um, well, I, I read your pound cake recipe. You actually think it's better than the one with gluten? Because it, it, does it get as, in other words, like how's the density of it compared to like a regular a little, gluten? It's a little lighter. Yeah. 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 So it also then it depends on what kind of pound cake person you are. It's also relative, you know, but I prefer it because it's a little bit, um, it's like you were talking about a little bit earlier, you're not going to overmix it. So you're going to have a really fine crumb. And, and on yours, can you substitute, because you use Crisco and then you put in, uh, I believe it was almond extract and I forget what the other thing, lemon? Lemon, yeah. was it? Yeah. And um, so is that one you could substitute the butter back for and do a oh, standard sure. sugar buttercream or what? 100%. And do you, I don't, I didn't remember the steps on that. Do you cream the Crisco with the sugar? Yes. And that's your, basically most of your aeration right there. So it functions like a standard pound cake. Yes. It, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, and is it hard to keep that one moist? What about, I, I would think some of the gluten-free flours are actually moister, right? Like the ones with sorghum are probably going to be, and tapioca are going to end up moister than their regular wheat counterparts, no? Um, it kind of depends. I haven't baked with wheat for such a long time, but um, I think you're kind of like, sometimes butter is a little bit, has more moisture. And so if you're taking away the, so like butter, more moist, wheat less, but then Crisco, less moist, gluten-free flour, more moist. So it's kind of like a trade-off. All right. So listen, people, get yourselves on the inclusive baking train. Go get Perfectly Golden by uh, Angela Gabatz. She is one of my favorite people out of Lincoln, Nebraska, Nebraska, where the possibilities are endless. Thanks also to uh, Jack Schramm and John, who got kicked off by Matt in the booth. Even though his booth is Rhode Island, he kicked Matt off because it's not very nice. Not very nice, and I'm gonna have to hear about it later. And uh, I will end with this, which you have to uh, you have to read the whole book. Uh, where is it? Where is it? You have to read the whole book for this to make sense. But Angela, you are a party cake. Cooking issues. Cooking issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>